Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who once got caught smoking the biggest cigarette in history inside of a toilet. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and I only smoke the largest cigarettes. <laughs> like, it was enormous in that child's hand. I was like, I wait, smoke, what? Is this I a smoke, cigar? I smoke one cigarette every other year. But I like to get enough nicotine in me that it'll last and just smooth out over time. Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Uh, for just a dollar a week over there, you get access to a bonus episode. It's always a non-criterion movie. You get to vote on what we're going to watch. I put together that list every month. Uh, sometimes I get a little help from the other Patreon supporters. Uh, so if you also want to uh, suggest a list, just a dollar a month, get in on that. <clears throat> uh We've, uh, as of this recording, it's been a while since we did a bonus episode because we don't do one for December. We do a public one for December for our, for our end of year holiday party. Uh, so it's been since November, and uh, this is our first recording of the new year. Uh, it's January 11th. This episode will actually post on Valentine's Day. So, because uh, <laughs> we do that thing, because we record we a little bit of, a little bit ahead, about a month. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, Pat, do you remember what the last bonus episode we did was? I mean, you mean not the Christmas one? No, not toys, not the Christmas one. Uh, no, I don't. I actually don't either, offhand. This is bad. This is real bad. Um, you know, yeah, all I can remember is toys. I, well, I wake up every night thinking about toys. Dreaming about toys. Well, you say dream. I guess dreams. <laughs> I guess nightmares are bad dreams. So yes. Our November bonus episode was blank check. Yes, it. Yes, yeah. it was. Boy, blank check was a ride, man. Yeah, that was. Yeah. That was a treat. That was. I forgot. Wow. We did the. We did the special things available on Disney Plus bonus episode, <laughs> and, which uh, I would like to point out as a theme was terrible. <laughs> number one, but also like we didn't even pick like. None of the things that are available on your Disney Plus are available on my Disney Plus. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, no, it was specifically wish fulfillment films on Disney Plus yeah, was, yeah, was. was what it was. But uh, I, you are correct to point out. Uh, yeah, don't have the same list. Anyway, uh, that's just a dollar a month. Like I said, gets you that bonus episode, gets you that vote. Uh, we've done some really fun stuff over there, blank check notwithstanding. Uh, we had a really great episode uh just in October, watching uh, GMK, the Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah uh, from, uh, what, 2001, um, with uh, one of our longtime supporters, Jason Westhaver, guested on that and suggested that poll, and uh, it was a delightful episode. Uh, a long episode, but a very delightful episode. Yeah, well, and he made a, did you see his... his, his oh, yes, he tweeted, he, he, he tweeted yeah, about it, it being nice. a, a I, highlight I was, of his time. Yeah, it was a time. nice thing to say. Yeah. 
and, the, and 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 he really captured the magic of what our podcast really <laughs> right, is. Right, talking for nearly two hours and almost twenty minutes of it was about the movie. Yeah, uh, for a little above the one dollar mark, uh, at five dollars, we thank those people on air. Thank you to Adam Speakerman for your longtime $5 support. And thank you to Christopher Otto, who has been a $5 supporter since the beginning of the year now, uh, which, as yes, I said, you. was 11 days ago as of the time we're recording this, but nearly six weeks as of the time this is actually <laughs> Hopefully posting. Hopefully he so, hasn't already changed his mind by the time this is released. So, Chris, sorry it took so long, but thank you for your support. I would like to point out that I, I own a copy now of Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. Because I love this movie very oh, much. Oh, yeah. And that's one uh, we watched. It's a Japanese copy. You you know what the Japanese title is? Please tell me. It's pretty it's pretty close, but it's it's basically Wolves of the Afternoon. Okay. So it doesn't it doesn't translate the idiom. <laughs> no, no. Which which is a thing that does happen sometimes. Instead yeah. of translating the idiom, it changes it to a thing that implies the sort of doesn't really like kind of changes the meaning pretty dramatically because I think the app the implication here is that they are the wolves of the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. But like they're not really. You know what I mean? It's it's just an interesting thing because it's on my desk yeah. next to me right now. So right, right. Dog Day afternoon implies the the heat of the day, but also the desperation of the action. Uh, is there is there an idiom in? Japanese that that might have been accurate. So. I don't think so. I don't think can, so. I, yeah. I've never heard it. I mean, I'm I'm gonna I am gonna look it up while you continue to talk. But uh... <laughs> well, if you figure that out, let me know. A little above that five dollar mark, at a ten dollar and above, we do something that I think is very special. Uh, Jason Westhaver is at that mark, and Michael McGrath at that mark as well. Uh, what we do is that not only do we thank them on air, but Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies that we watched recently. I get that printed up on postcards and write a little personal thank you note and mail that off. So if you yeah, love bespoke art and bespoke uh, short thank you notes in my terrible handwriting that you probably <laughs> can't read anyway, uh, I mean, they, they seem to always get delivered. So my handwriting can't be that bad, right? No, uh, I mean, your, your, your handwriting is what one would expect from a person using a fountain pen who didn't grow up in the 1800s. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Now, also fair... Uh, I went to college to be a high school English teacher, but I left the program before the class that would have taught me how to t write uh, on the board and on papers for other people to read. Right. So I never got that formal training, and I yeah, apologize. me neither. I'm pretty bad at it. Like I, I do that on a regular basis. I slowly taught myself like board writing, like yeah. clear board writing. Like I've got that down, but writing on papers still looks like garbage scribbles. <laughs> right. Right. Uh but yeah, patreon.com slash lost in criterion if you want to support us at any level. We are glad for any support over there, but we're glad to just have you listening too. So thank you for that as well. This week, we are talking about The Two of Us, a 1967 French Holocaust comedy. Um, <laughs> yeah, you heard him right. Calling it a Holocaust comedy is a bit of a misnomer too. It takes place directly. It takes place at the same time as the Holocaust, but it's more... And the the action of the movie is uh, is certainly in reference to the Holocaust happening and the fears of the time uh, for Jewish people, uh, but it is uh, it is I suppose an occupation comedy if I wanted to. Well, uh, yeah, nail I mean, down it, a, it's a time really period. not even about that. Yeah. even really. I want to interrupt though. I did look it up. Yeah, and the Wikipedia page for 
Dog Day Afternoon in Japanese does directly address the fact that uh, Dog Day is a uh, idiom meaning midsummer. Yeah. Like Midsummer's Day or whatever. And uh, the title Wolf has nothing to do with it. Yes. <laughs> it's literally uh, in Japanese is like this the, the use of the term wolf has nothing to do with that. And of course, if you just called it Midsummer Day, everyone would think it was an Ozu film. And uh, Right, right, no, right. It'd be very confusing. Anyway. Uh, we're watching The Two of Us by uh, Claude Barry. Uh, this is a fairly autobiographical film in that it is based on Barry's own experience uh, with some changes by Barry, yeah, who I mean, wrote the, it as the, well. The, the, the lady who provided his um, parents. I, I don't, I'm trying, like, so I don't know what to call that. Like, there, is, the, there is an interview the, uh, yeah. with... Barry on French television, where the woman who had provided safety, I suppose, is is the easiest way to say it, to Barry's parents and him, whose it is her parents who young Claude Barry was sent to live with for that uh, either summer or couple of years, depending on. Seems like a couple of years. She yeah. said forty three to forty five was yeah. the time yeah. that she helped the family. Right, right. So it could have so been. So we don't know exactly how long he was there. Right. Um, but uh, but she she takes offense, in fact. Says she was hurt by the uh, portrayal of the couple in this film because uh, she found them to be uh, very. Uncouth. Uh, yeah. Uncouth. Uh, as opposed to her parents who were, who were much better off. Uh which is an interesting complaint in a very French aristocratic thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably just that, like, you know, that's her mom and dad. And, like, yeah, you know, of course. I mean, I can understand. It's an understandable complaint to be like, you didn't exactly paint my parents in, like, the best right. light. But right. keep in mind, we do know that the part about him being an anti-Semite is accurate. Is, is accurate, yes. So it's like she's taking umbrage to the fact that, like, yeah. they're represented as being, like, boorish. But I think the more important thing here is the fact that they were anti-Semites, okay? Right, like, like right. if we're being really, like, on the nose here, yeah, they were very, uh, very, um, I forget what term she used, but they were very, uh, you know, very upstanding and uh, reserved right. anti-Semites instead right, of right, just, right. you know, boorish yeah. ones. It's like... In in other interviews, like you missed the wrong point right. here. In other interviews, Barry is very upfront that these these were people who listened to uh, the national propaganda, the the uh, the Bill O'Reillys of their day and and area, uh, and uh, fully bought into what they were hearing. Uh, but uh, but she takes offense that they were presented as bumpkins instead of. Yeah, which so that's which, very... which to be fair, uh, you know, it would be a different to story. But uh, but if these actually were well-off people, being shown to have the same prejudices and ultimately the same interaction with the boy, uh, it, it's just as good of a movie, I think. Just a, a slightly I, I different guess movie. so. I mean, I would say though that in that scenario, though the the yes and no because like. Telling me that aristocrats are anti-Semites seems almost even less surprising. <laughs> right. Honestly, if I'm being like, oh, French aristocrats are also anti-Semites. Boy, who knew? Yeah, go figure. Like, hold the phone. Stop the presses. Like, I mean, what I, you know, 
our our lead actor here, uh, you know, whose name I'm going to mess up because it's French and I can't do it. Uh, you 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 mean the the man who played Papa? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I mean, is, I'm thinking about the sort of the big get of the film, the person yeah, they like, Michelle Simon or Simon. Yeah, I was worried about Michael it. Simon. Like, we called him in the past, I'm sure. Yeah, but yes. Michelle Simon. He. He brought certainly his own thing to the movie for sure. That's described in the interviews as well, right? And I think to a certain extent, if you're the director, you're like, and he's like, I'm going to do it this way. You'd be like, to a certain extent, you'd be like, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. That sounds like a good movie. Let's do that. Like, you know, it, it's just a fascinating. But you know, and you know, he defends the director defends himself by saying, well, you know, I was nine at the time or whatever, right, or, right. Uh, you know, that was 32 years ago or something like that. Uh, which is fine, you know, that's fine. You know, he could also just have defended himself by being like, I made a movie based on my experiences, not like... Right. And he does argue in other places, like, this is not autobiographical. Right. It is connected to my... It is based on my life, not my life. Right? Yeah. But but my life made over to make a film, right? To make a 90-minute a movie that is entertaining and yeah. poignant and... You know what he wants to say, less than accurate to the truth. There, you know, we've talked in the past about there are different there are different kinds of truth, right? There is the truth right. that is an accurate representation of historical fact, and there is the truth that is the ideological meaning that he wants to portray. So, right, uh, and is... and then presenting this extremely extremely affable person who is yeah. who's very who's very nice to this child. But also making us all deal with the fact that he is also definitely 100% an anti-Semite is like is an important truth to get across. Like it really is. And the fact that even even after D-Day, he still has uh, Patain's portrait hanging in the house. Declares, "This is my house here. I decide who rules France." Right. Right. That. and that was an interesting thing because some of those other the, the interviews about that really started talking about the fact that like there was a a lot of internal like sort of personal reckoning to be done not just right. like on the streets but inside of houses to be like oh like dealing with the fact that you supported a puppet regime dictator right you know what right. I mean like that's that's a that's a hard reckoning to go through in right. like you know in a family right is. What a what a you know to realize like oh yeah I was on I was on team super bad guy right and what do you what do you do you can't uh, you can't get rid of what? everybody who was on team super bad guy right. right and then also even within your own life being like that 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 desire that like a lot of people especially men but like everybody goes through of like not wanting to feel internally inconsistent you know what i mean where you're like right well do i not support him now that like he's definitely you know what i mean like now that there's been he's been ousted and you know you know what i mean like now that the winds have changed completely in the other direction like is it like what do i what do i do right you know what i mean like on a very personal level do i say like oh yeah you like retcon your life which is what a lot of people did (laughs) which is what a lot of people did like a lot of people do that, in all, and then and there was that right. fascinating sort of study they did on wh- who people say they voted for, right? And like the number of people who will say they voted for whoever won the election is far higher than the number of people who voted for that person, right? Every time, 
Right. Like, uh, like you know, the number of people who purported to vote vote for Obama is like orders of magnitude larger than the number of people who even turned out to vote in the election total. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, so I'm sure there are are some occasions where the opposite of <laughs> that can also no that absolutely does work right. in both directions. But right. like that, your willingness to just mentally just rejigger your life to be like, yeah, that didn't happen. Right. Right. And we will we will see that to a uh, to not quite as absurdly horrific a degree, uh, but but getting closer every day. Uh, in yeah, the coming, yeah, no, I'm, coming yeah. years in America, I'm sure. Um, the uh, the Criterion Film essay for this is written by David Sterrett, um, who we've actually, we've had essays from him before because uh, most of the uh, Terry Gilliam works that we've uh, seen had David Sterrett essays okay. attached. Uh, but, uh, but he talks about the two of us, and his opening paragraph uh, talks about Francois Truffaut's uh, response to this film. Um that I think uh, is interesting. Uh, he says, uh, Truffaut knew exactly what made a great film great. For 20 years, he wrote in 1967, we had been waiting for the real film, quote, about the Nazi occupation of France, showing the French majority, quote, who were involved neither in collaboration nor the resistance, who did nothing, either good or bad, except survive. And that's what he found in Claude Barry's witty, intelligent comedy drama, The Two of Us, which he played among a handful of, placed among a handful of important films that seek to conquer truth. Um, I think, I think ideologically we can separate ourselves from Truffaut saying that uh, uh, doing nothing in such a situation is not neither good or bad. Um, right. Uh, yeah. You. You are. Yeah. We. We. You know. We have. There's a lot. There's a lot of very, very poignant political analysis of the fact that, like, not actively resisting the right. evil is 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 collaboration with evil. But like, an interesting thing is that's also not what's happening in this movie. Right. 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 Uh, like, I mean, that's what I think. That's what Truffaut wants to see when he looks at this film. It very much shows his personal bias on this. But that's not what this movie is. This movie is not about a person doing people doing nothing about the war. Right. We're, this is this person is a supporter of the regime that exists and believes it is good to deal <laughs> right. with right with Jews in this manner. Like that's what this person believes. This is a guy living in a France that has just been invaded and conquered by yeah, Nazi exactly. Germany, who blames the English and the communists for the war. Uh, exactly. And the Jews. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, because they're all. I mean, you know, the the. And it's it is fascinating because the radio serves as a sort of almost extremist inner monologue for the for the grandfather, yeah. Like in the sense that like because they play off the radio so often in their conversations, um, you know, the radio saying things like, "Oh, well, those are all Jewish states," you know, the and and those sorts of things, and that you know. We we get to know the way he sees the world, like through the. I mean, like he does verbally express it to the child, but he it's obvious that he also kind of tones himself down a little bit for the child. Not a lot, but like it's. I think it's safe to assume that he thinks the propaganda is what is true. Like what you hear on the radio is what he thinks is true about the world. Yeah, which is. 
very extreme. Like the the radio is is the sort of is also our connection to the outside world, right? Because we don't interact with the outside world any other way than that, really. Um, and it, you know, it, and then he mourns the loss of of his his version of Bill O'Reilly and things like that. <laughs> right, 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 right. He's uh, yeah. to suggest. The idea, what Truffaut seems to enjoy about this movie is that, uh, you know, in Conquering Truth, it it suggests that racists have rich inner lives. And I don't know that anyone has ever argued that. Or Well, no. Plenty of people well, have. Because plenty people of people believe that, that, that in order to be racist, you have to be uh, so overtly monstrous. That that it is all consuming, and that the nice people aren't racist. What right. this movie, and, 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 what this movie actually yeah. seeks to say is, the nice people are racist too, uh, and uh, maybe that's a problem we should be self-reflecting about. But right, yeah, it, it, that the movie does address a lot of a very like this. There's a, it is one hundred percent accurate to say that this movie is extremely poignant. Like, yeah, it addresses the fact that you know because that again we talked about that like sort of as you mentioned, the transit of property and things like that, like nice people can be racist and lots of racists are nice people, like, or at least seem like nice people, right? They do a lot of things that are not overtly evil on their day-to-day base. Uh, right. Uh, and, and, and it does deal with the, the fact that like dealing with the fact that like, th- you know, this is not as extreme as it can be when you're dealing with these sorts of things, but that like, I think we've talked about in the past, which is there were lots of just normal people Nazis. They just were. And they definitely did have rich inner lives. They were also monsters. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, those things are not uh, mutually exclusive, uh, as we see in the case of the grandfather here. Like, the grandfather here, had he been younger, we don't know what he would be like, what it would be like, right? Like, I mean, if he were of fighting age, right, and held these views, but then right. again, he's the sort of person who brought the Nazi power party to power, right. His beliefs are the the things he says are the sorts of beliefs that brought the Nazis into power in Germany in the first place. The belief that they were betrayed, and that like, you know what I mean? Like the the, the rhetoric he says is the rhetoric that gave was the wind beneath the sails for the Nazis in terms of like belief about like, you know, scapegoating the Jews for, for the failure of Germany during world war two. And a lot of things like that um, are the things he says. I mean, if he were German, he would be definitely be a Nazi. Right. 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 And that's a, that's a thing to think about, right? Like he's an affable old man here and now in this place, but he's also for all intents and purposes, a Nazi. Right. Right. And, you know, his affability is not uh, not a saving grace. Uh, it is, no. Yeah, not even a little bit. No. Now, one thing, in, in being based on Barry's own experience, right, and in being, therefore, somewhat based in reality— um, and Barry obviously survived the war, and his parents survived the war. 
So we we deal with this movie being sort of a separate piece too, right? Because no no one we meet on screen in this film dies, right? And yeah. there's no political structure in the lives of the people we meet, as far as we can tell, as far as we're shown. The Gestapo don't show up, right? No one marches well, through. Well, but we're, we're, we're given glimpses of it, and they mentioned this in some of the interviews. We're given glimpses of it, like the notice board saying, right. like, 50 right. people will be shot for every right. German right. soldier killed, and, like, and the fact that the one guy talks about the rationing board a lot. That's you know, fair. That's fair. They're tiny. They're minor intrusions, but they, right. they're there and, and, a little bit. And part of that, and, and even back to the the uh, weirdly, absurdly large cigarette, you know, this is also the point. This film is told from the point of view of our child main character. Right. Um, so those intrusions aren't something he dealt with, mostly because a lot of adults in his life were actively trying to guard the, him from them. Uh, right. Even the people who didn't necessarily know how actively they should have been guarding him from them, uh, you know. But even even uh, people who support the war in a time of war uh, don't necessarily want to uh, involve their children if they can. Well, uh, yeah, as manage, as, as right? we we find out, yeah, yeah, as yeah. as people in America know all too well, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so of course I I don't mean to make any sort of claim that this movie is apolitical. Uh, but uh, but to a certain extent, you could read it as a political. In... I mean, you could, but you yeah. would be wrong. <laughs> you would be like, wrong. In, in like that, you know, nothing we're being is very right, honest but, here. But, like, but, yeah, this movie has some very clear points that it's making, right? And it doesn't really. They're not the metaphor. The sort of point. The sort of metaphorical points here are not hard to read. <laughs> right. Right. I would say they're so they wear it wears it on its sleeves so hard that you you have to be actively willfully blind to not see them, right? Like they're pretty intense, right? Like I mean, there's a reason why the the movie spends so much time on the conversation between the boy and the and the grandpa about Jewish people, because the movie really really wants you to walk away with this one piece of information. Which is, this is an anti-Semite. This is what this person is. And what he believes about a group, this group of people is in direct contrast to the person he's literally right. telling it to. Right, right. A person who he clearly loves. Right. And has grown to love. It, it, I mean, you don't, yeah. And I, I don't know. I understand what Truffaut is trying to go for there, which is the idea that like this movie maybe to a certain extent even transcends truth, right? Like is it exists it, it carries that information so clearly that it it doesn't matter how accurate it is to a certain extent and some of that stuff maybe. Yeah. Uh, I can I can agree with that. But you know, I it, I worry about anybody who claims that anything is apolitical. It makes me very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, another thing about this movie is, you know, knowing the historical context of it, it is impossible not to be uncomfortable by the fact that it is a fairly lighthearted comedy, you know. And we saw this right. same sort of, 
you know, this same sort of uh, discussion around Jojo Rabbit uh, last year. Uh, the uh, which was much more. Uh, I have still not seen. You've, it comes you've not out seen next Friday. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does in Japan uh, as of recording. Uh, by the time this posts, you will have seen it three weeks ago. So just pretend. Go along with me. No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Play along. Ah, no. uh, yeah, that 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 no, part no. of the movie, I remember it so well. Jojo, Jojo Rabbit, I think, owes quite a bit to this, but is much more overt in its uh, in its danger. Uh, um, without uh, spoiling it for you or anyone else who hasn't seen it, uh, it is not separated from the violence, and you can tell that from the from the previews anyway. Um, and it is. You know the the Jewish characters in Jojo Rabbit are known to be Jewish, right? Um, but a lot of the uh, a lot of the theoretical talk about Jewish people is the same uh, as in this movie, and of course that's in that they were both based on absurd reality, right? Uh, <clears throat> the uh, the conspiracy theories about what Jews were. Uh, and are because such anti-Semitic right. yeah, conspiracy theories still, theory still exist, exists, yeah. still absolutely exist, um, and what Jewish people could be, uh, you know, they they were as absurd as the things the old man says here. And oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, for sure. And as absurd as the things JoJo's character claims in Jojo Rabbit, uh, and the other people around him, you know, they are laughably absurd if you're not blind to rhetoric. Uh, and they're absurd in the way where, uh, if you were encountering them in the vacuum, you wouldn't even know how to respond because, yeah, well, I mean, and, what and the hell are you, you even do, saying? Right. Like when right. in real life, you're like, wait, what? Did yeah. You just, what? Like, right. what are you saying? I do like the little bits of pushback the kid gives. Like when, uh, yeah, when Papa, <laughs> when Papa talks about Jews having large noses, he says, well, you've got a big nose and it. It actually ends in some sort of weird self-reflective of him yeah, looking no, in the mirror. Actually, it's really good because you can see actually he like fucks with their rhetoric pretty hard because right. that that goes on later on. They bring it up as like we get down to this like well we can't actually tell who they are like right. you know what I mean? It's like right. where we where we kind of end up with that except for like he believes he can smell them. It's a whole. I mean it's yeah, it's wild. But like you know it is not inaccurate. Um, you know, it, it was an interesting thing that, like, um, I forget. I there, I've one of the I follow a, a, at least one rabbi on um, Twitter, and she, I can't remember who which who it is. I can't remember now off the top of my head. But she talked. To, she had an article that she posted that she wrote talking about how anti semitism is so is kind of special in the sense that like it's sort of vagueness allows. Anti-Semites to just transform Jewish people into whatever suits their needs at the time. Yeah. Like, they can both be the reason they lost the war and the reason the war happened and also not have participated in the war as they should. You know what I mean? Like, can be everything at the same time, which is a really strange, like, power to wield. It, it's a... It's a I I don't want to comb through my Twitter feed right now. All right. I'm going to bet it was Donye uh, Rotenberg. Uh, but uh, it sounds right, but I can't. Uh, I can't guarantee it. So I wanna, I'm afraid to. Yeah, and I wouldn't be able to name the article even if that is actually her. Uh, but uh, she's a very prominent uh, female rabbi, uh, so it would 
it wouldn't surprise me if it were her, but she's obviously she is not the only one you could be following. So and, and um, yeah, and she's not. And that yeah. and the other thing is is that like um that that, that is not the most like ori- necessarily the most original observation. Right. But it was very well written and so it was it, it right. was very impactful right. the, when I read it. Yeah. And the idea that you know she's written about how, you know, condemnations of anti Semitism uh, often function in the same way anti-Semitism was, where you right, you'll condemn yeah. your you'll condemn your enemy uh, for being an anti-Semite, even though what they are doing that you're calling anti-Semitic is something that uh, you yourself or people on your side do all the time and never get called out for. Um, and in much the same way that the anti-Semitic rhetoric in this film functions, you know they. You know, they have large noses, but you have a large nose. They eat with their hats on. Well, you eat with your hat on. My beret's not a hat, is his retort to that. Right, right. <laughs> Which is, I mean, yeah, and and there's definitely comedy in it. Right, like, I mean, right, right. It, there, it, like, and it does play with the fact that, like, racism in its nature is, is absurdist. It's, right, it is, right. It is inherently comedic because it is just so fucking absurd, but it doesn't feel absurd to the people who are doing it right. and every human being on earth is guilty of it to some extent or another uh you know it's it's just a you know stereotyping people is a thing that people do and it's bad but we're definitely all guilty of it right um, i uh i did really love the scene in church uh just after the boy arrives uh where the uh the priest is staring at papa <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> While he delivers uh, a uh, a pretty good sermon, the Christian's choice is yeah, an no, easy he one. Excoriates him for it. Must yeah, be on the side of the oppressed, no matter who the oppressed is. <laughs> just looking directly at him. Oh, and I, I like how the I like how the 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 priest just like like almost you can almost feel it like the priest even knows he's not getting through, and so he like <laughs> right. he, he gets even more clear. He's right. like, even if they're wearing a gold star, right, right, right. Uh, and then in the very next scene, uh, he's like, ah, that priest is just a communist, uh, and completely dismisses it. And, and yeah, and that yeah, has no know, effect on him. And that's, a, right. that's another thing, you know, we don't, we don't see, uh, we don't see him as particularly religious, but even if he were, he would do the same thing, right? If, if he were, yeah, if he matter, were deeply, yeah. deeply Catholic, uh, he would probably still have dismissed the the priest as a communist and find any find any reason to ignore pushback against his world. Yeah, because that's not, what people he, do. Yeah, he's just not a good priest, right? right. Like, I mean, we even get that right. He's like, right. ah, all those good priests starving, and yeah, we got this guy or whatever, right? Of course, of course. And you know, yeah, as we've dealt with in other films, the uh, the very good priests in this situation were also just put to death. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, and and honestly, the, what that that priest is doing right there is a fairly bold act, like action. Oh yeah. Like it's fairly late in the war, so he probably maybe feels a little bit more emboldened, right? Because uh, you're like we're looking at like 1944 at this point, but like it's still a scary thing to do, right? To like, yeah, to go give an anti. Wait, I don't know how. Okay, how do an anti anti Semitism <laughs> sermon? Yeah. In Fran- occupied France was a dangerous thing to do, just straight right. up, just in and of itself. Right, it can be a pretty dangerous thing to do in America today. So, well, that's that's also yeah. true. 
Uh, well, but, I, the, the, the parallels there extend far <laughs> beyond the clergy. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. Uh, as for the timing of this film, uh, I believe the uh, D-Day happens during the course of the film, right? Because the, the school kids yeah, does. joke about yeah, why, I mean, why they're learning about the North Coast <laughs> suddenly. And literally, the dog dies on D-Day. Yeah, yeah. The dog oh, yeah. dies on June 6, 1944. Yes, I forgot about that. Like, yeah. And yeah. he's like, they killed my dog. It's like, mm, I don't know about that, bud. Uh, but it's just another thing he can blame on. Right, right, right. The, uh, it was the the one thing that the uh, what, <laughs> the panda drum. What was that? What was that big from Overlord? Where the uh, the circle? Oh yeah, yeah, the spinning rocket thing. The spinning yeah, rocket yeah. thing. Oh shit, I forget its name. Uh, the, the, the the I like to think of it as the History Channel special. <laughs> Yes, yes. I'm sure that that spinning rocket just ramped up the beach. Flew. <laughs> just drove over the dog. <laughs> landed, landed no, on the what, dog. The, they, they, like somebody in the in, in fucking like the American military high command had to write a report. <laughs> well, there were it managed to kill one enemy combatant, a dog <laughs> named Kinoa. Uh, and of course, of course, it would the Americans would label it as an enemy combatant because oh, anything absolutely. anything that was murdered was an enemy combatant. Yeah, well, uh, it ran over a dog and three sheep. <laughs> we're better off, but with they those were all sheep terrorist those dogs sheep. Dead. Yeah, they were all Nazis. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, Simon had been on uh, had a downturn uh, before this movie. Um, no one had been hiring him. And he'd kind of dropped out of the limelight for a while because he had a, some sort of extreme reaction to a makeup dye uh, that, like, uh, I don't, I don't know the actual results of it. Um, I think Barry, at one point in one of the interviews, refers it to it as a hair problem. So I don't know if it like balded him. Uh, apparently, it damaged his face as well. Uh, so he he dropped out of film for a few wow. years. Wow! I mean, I knew he had been out, but I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't catch that part of the. the interview. Yeah. Um. Simon uh, or uh, Barry, like I said, makes reference to the hair thing, uh, without any more context. But all of his interviews are on French television, so like everyone would know what he's talking about. Like we don't have the context right. to understand that. Um. From what I can gather, uh, he had a contaminated makeup dye. That did something to him physically, uh, but uh, but yeah. So he was <laughs> like hiring hiring one of the most recognizable and uh, celebrated character actors of French cinema. Uh, did nothing to actually make people want <laughs> to support this movie <laughs> um, right. production wise because he wasn't he wasn't a big name star at that point. Uh, he had a resurgence after this movie because this movie is very good and very, he is very good in it. Um, what did get this movie made, though, is a, an Oscar-winning short that is also on the right. Criterion DVD called Le Polet, uh, which is a delightful little – it felt very much – I think the jazzy score helped with this, but it felt very much like a, like a uh, Sesame Street short to me yeah i would uh, agree with that yeah i wouldn't be surprised if if we discuss if we found out somehow that they were influenced by something like this yeah the timing all sort of works out for that right right yeah but it's a, a little short story about a family who buys a rooster to have for dinner the next week 
and the little boy doesn't want them to kill the rooster, so he starts sneaking eggs out in the middle of the night so that his parents think the rooster is a hen until the rooster crows, uh, and the ruse is discovered, and then they don't eat the rooster anyway. Apparently, yeah, it, also, was, it was a good movie. Also based on a true story, according to yeah, Barry. Yeah, I mean, like, seems like it, it seems like it. Yeah, I mean, they. Yeah. I think in the interview they even threw up the uh, the newspaper article about it. Yeah. yeah, threw up a clipping on the screen. Like I, it, you know, I mean, seems reasonably read. That, that sounds like the sort of thing, like lighthearted news item right. you would get in a newspaper, and you know, it's um, it's a funny little movie. I liked it a lot. Yeah, it was, it was real it was fun. fun. Um, it, and, and but you know it was interesting because even then they couldn't like it. Said, I, when I was here, like th- this movie, the one we're mainly talking about, didn't actually start getting any public support until it went and I think went to like Cannes or something like that. Yeah, yeah, did pretty well. Like people did not want, and like they mentioned, like the like dealing with a fairly taboo subject at the time, which is like actually addressing how normal French people dealt with the war right like making a lot of people uncomfortable with for example like how they sort of tacitly collaborated with the enemy right. and things like that right and of course a lot of people a, people a lot of people tacitly collaborated because a lot of people want to normalize their lives um yeah right so it's not even it's not even a man the thing is papa does not just tacitly collaborate he has no, no power no, no, i know but right he doesn't yeah. exercise any power he might have but he's not just tacitly collaborating. He's not just well, living yeah, his life. Yeah. Um, right. What I mean, though, is that, like, it is still, like, oh, I think a lot of people did, like, Papa is extreme is extreme in the sense that the movie also really, really, really wants you to know he's an anti-Semite. Right. Because um, that's also very important as part of the storytelling. But when you think about the fact that, like, we don't really, and again, this is told from the perspective of a child, so we don't really know. But you don't see like a super active resistance cell right. in town. Right. We do get the resistance mentioned a few times, but like for example, we've got that other farmer who has to deal with the um, with the rationing board and is also selling to the resistance. But he's not giving to the resistance; he's selling to the resistance. Right, right, right. You right. know what I mean? Like that. There's a lot of people like that who had to reckon with what they did during the war, right? And that that was a sort that again, we we've talked about the fact that there's no such thing as neutral. Uh and that guy maybe thought he was being neutral, but he wasn't, right? Right. He he there was ways he could have been pro resistance with with very little effort, right? Like he could have just given the resistance their products or whatever. You know, there's lots of right. little things he could have done, right? And he chose not to do them. And those people all have to reckon with what they did, right? And that's what I think the movie, what they're talking about here is that, like, every single person in this movie who's not our main two characters has to deal with that question of, did you do what you could have done? Right. Did you take as many steps as were available to you? Did you put your life on the line to end this you know, and that and that's a thing that a lot of people don't want to face up against. There's a thing that, like as you mentioned, that Americans will also have to deal with, uh, and but but then again, have had to deal with for a long time. Because keep in right. mind, like the problems that we're seeing now, some of them are generated by the person in charge right now, but they're not all. Right. I mean, we we've we've accept, we have 
normalized and accepted the idea that we are we just murder with impunity overseas right as a country like that we can just do that and we don't even from afar that like and that's a thing that we have all accepted and if that tide ever turns we'll all have to deal with the idea of like what does that mean about us as people um an interesting collection and connection the uh the father from the pole uh is uh Jacques Marin, who I believe is, I believe he plays the dad in Forbidden Games, uh, a movie that uh, has a a similar uh, a similar sort of plot to this movie, but in a completely different tone. <laughs> um, if you remember, oh right, yeah, okay, yeah. I remember this movie. That yeah, was the I Clement movie, like, yeah, the yeah. Clement movie where uh, where the little girl whose parents are killed while fleeing um while fleeing paris uh ends up adopted by this country family um yeah uh which which is interesting because you know that movie that came out in 52 so we're like you know, 15 years before this um and i guess i guess it doesn't the family in forbidden games isn't necessarily overtly anti-semitic in any way that i remember seeing on screen um we talked during that that the little girl is is coded as jewish would never actually being explicitly named as jewish um and obviously her her non-understanding of catholicism is a big indicator of right yeah they're definitely the movie definitely wants you to know that right uh so you know that it plays in a very different way, but uh, but it does have that little connection to uh, to our work here, um, tenuous as it may be, because it is a different movie from the same director. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, you you are right in the sense yeah. that it, it does bear some similarities right. in plot, and and I I bet if we went digging, there's quite a few few movies. I mean, given the nature of what the world went through, especially yeah. Europe went through. Oh. Of course, I wouldn't be surprised if this plot is actually extremely common, yeah. or something in this feel like, you know, we we're seeing little snippets of it, like the sort of best of, but I wouldn't be surprised if this for a while was a plot point that showed up a lot. The difference, of course, being that the um, the real big difference here being that the grandfather in this is right just intensely um, overtly. which is is an important point of that sort of separates this movie from a lot of other movies right he's not some external bad guy he's the person that this child is relying on to keep him alive and safe yeah you know what i mean i think that's a really that's a very key and important point and a person that this this child really does seem to like like to love and and who seems to really love this child and that's a really and yet has this is this way and is is a bad person because of it. Right. It's a, you know, it's an interesting, I think a, probably a very significant difference that sets this movie apart from a lot of others. Right. Because usually the, usually the racist or the bigot is the bad guy and is an external force, not an internal force. Right. Right. When we, you know, we, you talked about it earlier, right? Like it's the easiest way to do it is to just code is to just say, this is the racist. He's the bad guy in this movie. And we should, and then all the good guys aren't racist, right? You know, all the 
the heroes of the story aren't. Yeah. Right. Right. It's, uh, it is a movie about the complicated nature of individual humans, right? Uh, yeah. Too, of course. And, and the kid himself, you know, who, who has to understand what is going on around him, uh, but, but just can't help himself in so many ways, uh, yeah. through the course of his day. Well, he's a child. I right. mean, he's a child. And, and 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 when you think about it in a lot of ways, right, like that's one of those weird sort of like we kind of see it as a sort of secondary tragedy of these events in history, right? Is that like so often children are required to just not be children, right? right. Like what's going on here is a lot of people want him to be an adult, like right fucking now. Because an adult would not give right. themselves away an adult right. would not cause these tra- problems but he's fucking nine years old right they do nine-year-olds do crazy nonsensical shit all the time it's just what they do um and you know we talk you know it, 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 it's a thing that continues to this day right like i mean there are lots of children around you know in lots of places oftentimes as a result of the actions of the country that you and i are both from <laughs> yes uh who are put in positions where they're required to be adults, where right. they they need they really shouldn't be, right? Where they have to extend themselves far beyond their age, and there are limits to how well children can do that. Like you know, you they, we like say like you know, things like this make children grow up fast, and that's true, but there's still a limit to how mature a nine year old can be. There's just an upper limit to like that reality, right? Like you can't make an, a nine year old an actual adult. Yeah. Uh, now, interesting, uh, Elaine Cohen, who, who is our star here and plays, plays Claude, um, his mother went through a similar experience to the character of this film, uh, but her mother, his mother, his grandparents, his maternal grandparents were killed in Auschwitz. Um, so he, he is said to have a, uh, a familial understanding of the gravity of what is going on here. Um, and, uh, and Barry admired him for that. Uh, but also Barry admired him for just being very good. <laughs> um, yeah. did you watch the interview with Cohen, uh, on the DVD? Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, I, I only missed the one interview, the, yeah. the second interview. No, actually I watched all the interviews for, for this, this one. Movie. Yeah. Uh, the Cohen interview is fun, uh, because he, he starts it off with people say it was a brilliant piece of acting. I don't remember acting at all. I just remember getting three months off of school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently the story on uh, on his getting cast is that uh, Barry went to a Hebrew school looking for someone to star in the film and uh, was in Cohen's classroom and uh, Cohen was acting up a bit, but, but they moved on to another classroom. And after Barry and the principal had left... Uh, Cohen got kicked out of class, uh, but uh, was hiding behind the curtains in the lobby instead of going to the principal's office or wherever he was supposed to be go- <laughs> have gone. Uh, when when Barry came back downstairs and saw his feet under the under the curtains, uh, this kid's perfect. And, and basically, yeah, this kid's perfect. And it turns out he was. And uh, and Cohen would go on to play 
the younger version of uh, of Barry's insert character in a number of other films he directed moving forward. Uh, I believe three total. Um, well, he did a very good job. I mean, he was very yeah. He was very natural, which is always hard with child actors, uh, right? Yeah, he, he, yeah, it, it works very well. Like, I mean, he's he did an excellent job. Uh, yeah, he doesn't remember it, uh, which is hilarious. <laughs> but you know, right? Still, well, he doesn't remember it. He doesn't remember doing well at acting. I, I'm sure he remembers the experience. I'm sure he, yeah, of doing no, it. he yeah, I'm sure he remembers yeah. the experience. But yeah. like, he doesn't probably remember actively trying to act. He and Simon apparently remained friends for for the rest of Simon's life as well. Uh, and yeah, and we're very very close on the set too. Uh, even even while Barry complains about about Simon sleeping till eleven and then wanting lunch and then yeah. and then maybe showing up to the set at two o'clock. Um, but he says, well, you have, you have Michelle Simon for two hours a day. It's like having anyone else for eight hours. So it's fine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. Barry's, Barry's view on directing, um, I found very interesting. He says, uh, for me, when you have to direct an actor, you have chosen the wrong actor, uh, and commends that, uh, Simone and Cohen both sort of intrinsically understood their characters and, uh, yeah. But that that kind of tracks with sort of like is is sort of in line with the French New Wave, right? Like yeah. It's not exactly, but that that idea that like if your director's doing too much, something's gone wrong, right? Right. Yeah, and that's uh, see, it's it's interesting too, though, right? Because the French New Wave very very much about finding non actors who can naturalistically perform, um, right? And occasionally throwing a bone to the to the older actors who might right. have a walk on role as the grandfather in some some new wave movie or whatever, um, because the they respected cinema, but they were trying to make their own cinema. The French new wave guys. Um, Barry is a bit late to the new wave party, right? He came up after. Right. Yeah, after and I get guys. that, but that's why I'm saying I feel like in some ways it's it might be sort yeah. of a you know, like the progression of that philosophy, right? It's not exactly French New Wave because, right. you know, you and I have seen enough French New Wave films at this point to know, like, what they, like, look like and taste like, you know? Right. Um, and, like, this isn't that. And I mean, of they're also we... just not generally historical pieces. Right. Of course, we've know? seen French New Wave films that uh, also pulled a, pulled a kid out of school and ended up with one of the greatest actors they could well, exactly. have found right and, but, and and like when i and my so my thought process is here is that like this is not exactly french new wave but it's sort of in the same wheelhouse right right in the idea it's not just because of the actor choice but also that idea of like a hands-off director the idea that like just let them be get a good actor and then just you know or a person who is what you already is what you want and let them do what they're gonna do is definitely a Seems, it very much sounds like the same sort of general philosophical uh, thought process. If you ask me, like that's just my yeah. sort of thought pro- thought on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas you know other other directors we know who use non actors like uh, uh, Bresson. This is not a Bresson film by any means. <laughs> like, no. Yeah, no. Yeah. 
Well, and then that's the weird thing, right? Like, Bresson films also are, like, strange in the sense that they are also historical pieces. Right. And, like, you get... French New Wave automatically runs into a problem as soon as it you take it out of the time it is, because it's not exactly French New Wave at that point, right? Because French New Wave has that sort of, like, in-the-moment thing going on as well, right? Like, the... You know, the hallmarks of those are the ones that feel like you're just following a person around in their daily life, right, almost to a certain extent. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it's, and yeah, it's definitely not a present film. Like, it's very, very different from that. Right. But, you know. But then again, the same the same level of director interaction with the, with the in terms of teaching people how to act. Right, right, right. Like, well, you got it or you don't, and if you don't, I'm going to find somebody else. Seems to be right. kind of very standard. Well, the, the whole idea that you somehow learn, you actually come away from, from being a Bresson actor knowing less about acting than when right. you started. Right, right. Uh, fair. Um, yeah, yeah. It's Cohen's point in making this movie. There is one point in, or, you know, there is one point in the interviews where Cohen says what he takes away from the movie is that you realize that even a kind-hearted man can contain the cancer of racism, right? Right. And, uh, and Barry thinks that the movie is not specifically about anti-Semitism, but about prejudice across the board. Right, yeah, sort of, of course. And, and, of course, you know, you can, you can say that. That's, I that's mean, fair. and that's, yes, I think that's a, you know, yes and, right? Because, yeah. It is about anti-Semitism, but, you know, bigotry right. is, is also just bigotry, right? Like, right. it just right. is, right? right? And, you know, oh. any... But but to make a movie that says, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the people you think are just kind and normal people also have these terrible thoughts and terrible beliefs and have probably shared them with you over a game of pool and you've just changed the subject and now don't think about it. But... Uh, yeah. But yeah, and you know, it's that is an important message for anyone trying to. Uh, I think it is an important message for sort of liberal-minded people to remember, because because yeah. so often, you know, it's like the people who view the civil rights movement in the U.S. as something happening in uh, in the South, uh, you know. But when when uh, M.O.K. went to Chicago. Uh, and you know complained about cleveland and detroit and you know columbus columbus uh was one of the major uh school integration uh supreme court cases um right that led to busing uh you know the cities of of the north had just as deeply ingrained racism they just exhibited it differently and that is true throughout the history of the u.s because the economy of the u.s was built on slavery you know from the very beginning so it didn't yes. you know you weren't insulated from it you might be separated from it but you weren't really separated from it you know your your entire economy was tied up in it so you're not out of it and in the same way you know this is this is a part of french history right you don't just get to declare a new republic and uh and pretend, right, and then just and pretend that old stuff that wasn't happening yeah uh, particularly when you are continuing some of the worst effects of former iterations of your country, you know, and think about um, 
the French interaction over the course of 200 years and probably uh, at least a half dozen different governments and government types, uh, the French response to Haiti, right? Right, yeah, and yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I mean, and I don't remember what it was that I was listening, you know, what was it? Oh, one of the podcasts I listened to uh, is another movie podcast, and um, I can't remember the name of it. I think a movie name is Itame or something like that, but uh, it's about it's a Senegalese film talking about like the fact that like and one of the things it addresses is the fact that like oh the government keeps changing but it's exactly the same as like nothing changed here right right you know like yep still exactly the same like oh I thought this person was the leader oh that person's the leader now uh, the, like how so- simultaneously the leader of France can ma- matter zero and also be super important to right, somebody right. who has who has never been to France, which of course is, is also a government, a, a, an argument that, uh, the movie, the leper made, you know, that, uh, right. You know, as long as, as long as the structures stay the same, it doesn't matter if the government changes or even if, if everyone in the government changes, or even if the structure of the government changes, as long as the power hierarchies, uh, on the lower class, uh, maintain are are the same. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. And they, they, there was, you know, there was the, there was that other article a while back that, um, where they did a study about like which families suffered the most during uh, the revolution in China, and the fact that like the really, really old money families just weathered it, yeah, and are still the, you know, are still on top, right? Whereas you know, you know what I mean, like that, that fact that like the structure changes, but it never really changes enough to really right. unseat that many people from power. Right. Yeah. And of course, you know, one thing this movie argues is that there are plenty of uh, plenty of people with absolutely no power uh, who support that lack of change. Uh, Yeah. Because. Why? Uh, Because they they want their bread at the end of the day. It's not just the change is scary. It's that that uh, you want to eat. Right. Right. Yeah, you, know, you want to eat, you want to live life, you want to see your kids grow up, you want to keep the lights on, uh, and you just want normalcy, and you will tolerate any number of atrocities not happening directly to you uh, in order to achieve normalcy. Right. Uh, and that is that is as true in France in 1944 as it is true in America today, as it is true in any country today. Yeah. Uh, in that regard, uh, oh goodness, I don't think I'm going to be able to find it anyway. There's a poem I ran across uh, that I really like uh, that I hope I can find. Uh, yeah, you, you should. I can't ever find any of the things I'm thinking about, so I just gave up a long time ago. Uh, let's see if I can just search oh there we go yeah uh that reminds me of a a poem by a guy named danny brick called if you can go back or if you could go back uh that starts off i know i know if you could go back you would walk with jesus you would march with king maybe assassinate hitler at least hide jews in your basement it would be all clear to you but people then just like you were baffled had bills to pay and children they didn't understand and they they too were so desperate for normalcy they made anything normal. Uh, 
the poem goes on, but uh, but yeah, yeah, that's the that's the gist of it. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. well, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely, and we're you and I are guilty of it too. I'm sure. Right, like, I know right. I am. Absolutely, sure. absolutely. Yeah, you know, it is, it is easier, easy to ignore the much larger struggles of other people when you have your own yeah. small struggles. And, absolutely. So. I will have to satisfy myself. I satisfy myself with the process I've decided to undertake myself uh, in my own life, which is to terrifyingly radicalize my children. <laughs> Push to just make them crazy radical. Well, I figure I'm pushing. I'm. I'm. It's. It's a slow process, but I'm bending that arc of history. Push one, one, one two children at a time. Push your children to create a world that you do not recognize and that, frankly, kind of frightens you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that is, um, there's a bit in in the book of Matthew where Jesus says, "I didn't, I didn't come." Uh, I, he says, "I came with a sword to separate families, to separate that that fathers would turn against sons and mothers against daughters." And I think a a, a good interpretation of that, uh, considering the the nonviolence of the rest of what Jesus said right. <laughs> around it, right. uh, I, an, inter- an interpretation I've fallen on is this idea that you know uh, it is the duty of of a parent to uh, who who believes in ideology uh, like you do or or like Jesus did. Uh, that wants a a wholly radical change to the structure of humanity, uh, it is the duty of that parent to push their children into something that uh, where their ideology is is so radical that it is unrecognizable as something you can agree to, and that they right. are separated. Yeah, you're from absolutely you. right. And we kind of see a weird mirror of that in this movie, which is really interesting because both of their children are not him you know what i mean right which is an interesting thing about this movie it's a really fat the the son is hard to tell i kind of get i get this very subtle hint that maybe the son participates in some like anti-nazi activities yeah because he's so quiet about it right like, and he really cuts loose right around the sort of invasion time right like his the like he suddenly gets so much more like happy right like it makes me wonder like maybe like there's something cuz again it's told from the point of perspective of a child so the child would have no idea right it wouldn't terribly shock me to discover that the the brothers been maybe part of the resistance or something like that uh but we know for a fact that the daughter is at least you know if, if not we'll never know what bigotry she holds in her heart but like she's certainly at least willing to to help jewish families in need right uh which is not what he is right like it's a really that's a sort of an interesting thing to to think about they know their dad's wrong right (laughs) and they they have somehow grown up in knowing their dad's wrong but their dad is also radical in other ways like you know he's he's a uh he's a vegetarian and right. and calls anyone who eats meat a uh, a, car- a not just a carnivore a cannibal. Uh, yeah, calls him a cannibal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he he recognizes some innate humanity for animals uh, while denying the humanity overtly, at least in word, of actual humans. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, and then you know, if your if your father went around preaching the idea that all animals are sacred and that we shouldn't eat them, it's not a terror. You know what I mean? Like, there's those sort of connections that children are capable of making that adults are already too ingrown to make, right? We're like, well, your logic here just doesn't make sense, but you did teach me this thing, so I'm going to extend it in this way that you wouldn't personally do it. Yeah. But I'm sure as shit going to. Right, right. Yeah. And that, you know, uh, in my own life, that is, uh, I have I have had similar exactly. pathway. Absolutely. Right? You know. Yeah. And then, like, I don't think either of my parents would be socialists, but. Right. I have in- Although nowadays, I, I'm not actually 100% sure about that. <laughs> uh, the last couple of visits have been interesting, so who yeah. knows at this point. But, uh... Uh, well, yeah. Um, and that's, you know, in my own life. I, I internalized uh, what my parents were trying to teach me about religion and took it took it to an extent that, uh, that neither of them would be it's, comfortable yeah. with. Exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think that's... And that's, you know, that's my hope, right? Like, if my children start where I am, I can't wait to see what they decide, you know, what right, that leads right, to. Right. Uh, yeah, just just wait till uh, little John is 16 and reads the Fountainhead for the first time. and uh. I will I will die. <laughs> I, 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 I always find it shocking in a movie when they, like, when they disown their children or something like that. And I can't. That might be the only scenario. <laughs> Listen, don't don't disown your children. They're never. No, like... I won't. I won't do it. But boy, will those be awkward Christmases? <laughs> boy, I'll tell you. I'll put up with them, but they will be awkward. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Um. Can I say, Barry, Barry in a 1987 interview and the Criterion essay finishes with this, and, and perhaps it'll be where we leave off uh, with discussion around it. Uh, Barry says, like Truffaut, I don't think about what is more important, life or movies. In all my life, I am making only one movie, and that movie is my life. Uh, I don't think that phrase means anything. It is it is the sort of vacuous thing that 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 could could mean anything like like for Truffaut, what does that mean? That movie means a lot of autobiographical work, and Barry, it means a lot of autobiographical work. Uh, but for someone like Goddard, could say the same thing, or or Fellini, Fellini yeah, could say the same thing. There's no there's no difference like, between life or movies. There's just my life, which is a movie, and my movie, which is a, is my life. Uh, yeah, I, I, I and, those kind of like and very like, hollow yeah. philosophical. This, the scale music. on there from Barry to to Fellini, um, we get we get more horrified as it goes along. I think, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, of yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but they could all accurately say that too. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's not it's it's an interesting end uh, to uh, to the Criterion essay because like you said it it doesn't really mean anything um even even for people whose whose lives are you know their movies are so much reflections of who they are uh to their core that uh you know there's no escaping it but it's it's also you're still fictionalizing it like Barry particularly is fictionalizing and certainly Truffaut was fictionalizing it it. (laughs) yeah it's it's really like 
And then like that 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 statement by its nature is honestly impossible. Like if you if you think about it in like real practical terms, that phrase means nothing because it's impossible. <laughs> like unless you are on the fucking uh what oh shit, what's that Jim Carrey movie? God, I can't even remember. I don't I don't even know what No, were they like uh, were they, the Truman like, were Show? Like, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the Truman okay. Show. That's what I mean. It's like unless you are a victim of a Truman Show esque scenario. That phrase actually doesn't really mean anything yeah. other than saying, like, I love movies so much that, like, my life is movies and movies are my life kind of thing, right? Like, honestly, I don't – little boy, that's rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think we could probably draw this to a close. This week we've been talking about The Two of Us from 1967 – Directed by Claude Berry and based on his own life experience as a uh, eight-year-old Jewish boy sent to live with uh, Catholics who were both racist and didn't know he was Jewish. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> leading to lots of comedy. Uh, I do. I do actually want to. I do love the bit where, like, the last thing his parents tell him are, "Oh yeah, don't let anyone see your penis." <laughs> yeah yeah it's like the funny thing is like they had it must have just been a reminder right, right because like right. he that's one rule he definitely internalized <laughs> right, right right uh and so like he had to like they it, that couldn't have been, it couldn't have only been right before he got on the train right so but it's really funny that they're like oh and by the way don't show anybody your dick it's like wait what <laughs> like wait why are, why did you tell me this before <laughs> right. uh yes oh this is this is a really fun movie. I enjoyed watching this. Yeah, I'm so glad really, we got to really, watch it. It really like it is. It was shocking to me that like a movie about World War Two, yeah, and, like and, and you know Jewish people during World War Two would be a funny movie. But it was a, a nice surprise. Yeah. I mean, I really did like this movie a lot. There, uh, we'll leave off with this. There's uh we haven't we haven't dogged on IMDb for a long time. Uh, be, mostly because the changes to that website made yeah, it so that there was less to less to dog on. Uh, but one of the user reviews of this, uh, the last line of it is a movie for church ladies. What? <laughs> because they consider it so innocuous. Uh, <laughs> let's not break that down too much and just kind no, of laugh at it and move that. on. Let's, let's stay far <laughs> away from that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, next week, we will be talking about a... A movie that's definitely not for church ladies. <laughs> <laughs> a movie that maybe more church ladies should see uh, and also oh, never church see. Church would be very interesting if they saw this. <laughs> 1971's WR, Mysteries of the Organism, directed by Serbian uh, Dusan Makavejev. Uh, it is a trip of a film, and I look forward to talking about it. Oh, God. Uh, even, oh, boy. Even, as, even in this moment, I have no idea how we will talk about it but i this is gonna be a ride but uh but tune in next week for that uh, i think from the perspective of church ladies is probably our best bet (laughs) because it sounds like a lot of fun (laughs) maybe we should uh but yeah look forward to that thank you once again for listening to lost in criterion i am as always Liam glass with me as always john patrick oitari dorgan and we'll see you next time
You've been listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Hoatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. We'd appreciate it.